0: Thaddeus Allenberg presents Casual Friday, written and read by Thaddeus Allenberg. Extra Innings. On the west bank of the Hudson River, near Colby Point, inside New Jersey's W. Stratton Museum of Natural History, you'll find a 65-million-year-old Tyrannosaurus Rex under a living, self-sustaining green roof, a 3D solar system with planetary weather patterns, and the famed 7-foot-tall silverback gorilla model scaling the museum's rotunda, aptly named Jersey Kong. But without question, the institution's most intriguing and especially peculiar exhibit sits in the center of the main floor. It's a two-story, early 20th century brownstone with sizable basement and steep walk-up. The display includes a tiny front yard surrounded by a short chain-link fence with an old street sign that reads 121 Hobuck. And in the yard, next to an unassuming plaque in bronze, if not copper relief, with the eye-catching title The Tenth Inning, you, or any museum-goer, will notice a wide, shallow pit covered by a layer of plexiglass, preserving not only a century's worth of local lore, but a most celebrated national pastime. In its abbreviated, this exhibit tells a series of stories beginning at various points in time, each set in the same geographical location. Beyond the vibrant call of the avian wing or the lure of man-eating beasts of the Serengeti, there is here a simple conversation of stone and mortar presented in proportion with panache and ten-dollar words. These are the layers of life, the eroded sediments of time, as they exist all around us. But for the sake of novelty, let's begin somewhere in the middle. As first mentioned in a 1941 item from the Hudson Clipper, a weekly entertainment newspaper heralded over a century for its consistent margins, of which many leading newspapers tried to replicate, including the New York Daily Star and the Syracuse Zephyr, there is the account of Roger and Polly Kern, the home's original owners. Born one of eight children to a Long Island ferry worker, Roger met Polly on the switchboards of the NET New England Telephone Company, after a sequence of unsuccessful patches to a local sleep practitioner were instead put through to the Jen 1 restaurant, who, despite their frustrations, continued to answer the phone. It was a lovely June wedding. They purchased the house at 121 Hobuck Street, near Colby Point in 1937, where it stands today next to an illuminated interactive museum directory, Still lined top to bottom with dark wood and doilies, and a woven yarn tapestry above the kitchen door that reads, Just Peachy, a homey mark of Polly's making roots. A wind chime salesman by trade, although not a very good one, given strong gusts off the Hudson, breaking his veil of stealthiness, a skill vital to any door to door solicitor, Roger provided the pair whom he endearingly referred to in the third person as the Yankee and the Southern Belle, with a modest yet happy existence. Wednesday nights, they played bridge at Putnam Hall, the meeting place for the country's first couples-only lodge. On Fridays, they went dancing. On Saturday nights, they sat together on the same love seat, engrossed in hours of their favorite radio serials. Harper Quinn Mysteries, the D.H. Wilder Eight-Minute Suspenses Hour, Adventures of Dizzy Potts and the Masked Magician. No newspapers were permitted, a stipulation agreed upon by both parties. On Sundays, they would drive out to Newarts Bay or Shipowie Island. That is, if they hadn't already committed to taking it easy in the yard, planting fall bulbs, or trimming the hedge. Unable to conceive children, they had each other, and everything was just peachy. Then one day, on a chilly October morning in 1941, Roger and Polly made a discovery to beat the band. Inside Roger's Dutch tulip bed, they unearthed what appeared to be the bone of a human finger sticking up through the soil. Mm. Now this was in neither one of their wheelhouses, so they did what any one of us would have done. They notified the authorities. The sheriff at the time, Elijah B. Davidson, arrived on the scene shortly after his officers unburied the hand and forearm, which were conveniently attached to the finger. As night fell with a gallery of neighborhood onlookers, rubberneckers and gossips alike, police exposed the complete skeletal remains of the 1879 Hoboken Husky shortstop, Kid Turney, still in his uniform and ball cap. In his day, Turney was the proud owner of a wicked chop that helped him claim a 330 batting average during the 1877 season. Reports on the scene were mixed and muddled among the public. A bystander later stated that a group of older men thought the bones belonged to a black angel of death sent by the Kaiser to win the war. Another remembers a gang of keyed-up boys running down the street saying they were the fossils of a giant three-headed lizard which they had seen at the Hill Theater fighting a and Sea monster in the Island Man Forgot. After several days of excavation, the police, aided by a dapper squad of G-Men from the FBI, had turned up the bones of Turney's complete infield, their skeletons entirely intact, sporting bats and mitts in the Hoboken name. There was third baseman Dewey Chase and second base Nickel Moses McRae, Pitcher Enoch Frederick, and first base Lucius Garrett. There was even catcher Bo Bagsley, the Wall, whom no man or ball could get by. Duke Waldo, Bill Abbey, Burt McGinley, whose skull still sported the lefty's famous full mustache, which upon being exhumed, had taken on a distinguished grey. When everything was said and done, authorities had uncovered every member of the 1879 Hoboken Huskies baseball club, including relief players Hank and Donald Avery, the twins, general manager Ty Winslow, and owner Sid Barrington, still clinging to his leather ledger containing the boys' contracts. And all from the one's beautifully manicured yard of the Yankee and the Southern Bell. As reported in the New Jersey Vanguard, March 1879, and later substantiated by textual accounts from the National Weather Bureau, there is the story of a beautiful spring day and a talented group of ragtag ballplayers from Hoboken. Following a strong 1878 season in the minor leagues of the New England American Rum and Rye Association, The 1879 Huskies were poised to dominate the division on the previously lush, then-retired fields down yonder, across the river from a heaving Manhattan. Reduced to a dusty lot following years of play and abandoned by the majors for packed ballparks of wood and steel, Browser Fields, turned Colby Grounds near the point, embodied the game's pure, unadulterated essence. No turnstiles or temperance perfect for a club of local amateurs who called themselves the Huskies. They lived, ate, and drank the game, and played every day at dawn's first light, fielding and batting, until it got so dark they could no longer see the ball, and a ringing chorus of crickets was calling them home. They were determined. It was said that not even an act of God could tear them away from their positions. Kid Turney ran the infield and was one of baseball's early defense specialists that could swing a bat, which he practiced in the saloons for pay for outlaw Shanghai Pete. Enoch Frederick took to the mound and could curve the ball mid-flight, after he lost his ring finger in a factory accident. Lucius Garrett, an old soak, covered first and always kept a nipper in his pocket and a keg by the bench. The team's new owner, Sid Barrington, a businessman in various ventures, most notably the manufacturing of office desks with interchangeable privacy boards, including a series of short panels for sunny days so workers could see outside, saw the club's success as an excellent investment, as well as an expression of his own passion for the game. Unfortunately, Barrington was a fraught commerce man, playing assets against assets, and fields just finding their footing. And even before the start of his first year with the organization, the Hoboken Huskies, unbeknownst to the players, was on the brink of bankruptcy, as well as an order for three dozen six-drawer office desks bought in the team's name. On the 19th of March, a day recorded as sunny and clear with a gentle breeze out of the southwest, the team took to the Diamond to prepare for their season-opening match against the Brooklyn Boilers in a week's time. The crack of Bo Bagley's bat rang out to the point, and the season had officially begun. The first nine were in rare form, and Lucius Garrett wasn't even sloshed. Observers in the vicinity recall several teams on the grounds that day, along with a generous number of spectators herded around the bigger ball clubs. It was just after lunch when the winds picked up, one eyewitness reported. It caught up the sand and began hurling the trees and swirling about. The Blue Caps suspended their practice and took shelter while attempting to keep those Blue Caps atop their heads. As far as I could tell, the other teams followed suit shortly thereafter with their fanciers in tow. Reports from New York detailed the vantage across the river. It was a titanic dust cloud, a streetcar operator exclaimed. A flash storm of biblical proportion, a wall of sand that blacked out the sky and subsided as quickly as it intensified. The anomaly lasted only a minute but for a group of ardent ball players caught out in the name of tenacity only to lie dormant for decades under the shifting sands of jersey its effects would span over generations In a 1994 article from the Derby Eagle, New Jersey, documenting the 15th anniversary of the formerly named Roger Kern Museum of Natural History, and detailing the Kern's rise to prominence with their popular 50-cent roadside attraction, the 10th inning with the original Hoboken Huskies, there is the story of a rivalry, educational in nature, and a simple but fair stipulation. Based on the site's archaeological significance, not to mention its local and sporting heritage, the home and surrounding property of Roger and Polly Kern became a National Historic Landmark in 1966. Polly Kern passed away several years later and was laid to rest at the base of a sprawling red oak tree in the backyard, as their acreage had grown since purchasing the house in 1937. One of the only homes remaining in the area Due to inland suburbanization in the 1950s, a proposal passed in 1979 to build a state-of-the-art natural history museum with dinosaur bones, botany exhibits, selective pottery from the native Nortok Indians, constructed entirely around the Kern home and the city's beloved huskies. As part of the agreement, which included a hefty one-time undisclosed fee, a figure reported in the trades is unprecedented, Roger Kern would maintain ownership of the Huskies until his death, a deal that included the deed to the house, where Roger would live out the rest of his said days near his wife. The results were a real crowd-puller. Baseball and museum fanatics of the like flocked to see the Hoboken Huskies' 10th inning, and with any luck, their adored owner, Roger Kern, as he stepped out onto the stoop each day for a wave and to fetch the morning paper delivered by an overnight security guard even following a name change in 1989 the new w stratton museum of natural history after the former governor engaged in a washington scandal they averaged an annual attendance of over two million visitors putting them in a first seed running for tillman's prestigious most visited natural history museums in New England. Their main rival and fellow bracket stalker, the Natural History Museum of Bailey County near Princeton, who claimed to house the first string 1892 Township Townies football team set in the university's iconic painted rock, took a top seat in the standings when they introduced their famous fungi forest with sleepover and exploratory blind taste test. The W. Stratton rallied back to reclaim their position in the race for the Northeast pennant and a shot at the title of most visited museum in America after the highly publicized trade of their giant late Jurassic Wombat fossil to the Percy Museum in exchange for two of their New England glandular toads, which despite their draw, were known throughout the herpetology world as being a handful and difficult to manage a trade well received by the public. Additionally, their contract stated that the toads would stay with the W. Stratton organization for 10 years and would be paid generously with 5 crickets every other day and a 70 waxworm bonus each year. The crickets themselves were to be fed a mixed vegetable diet with green leaves and carrots. The toads, Blinky and Dot, were to be dusted with a premium calcium powder to maintain their earthy glow. In the middle of the season, school season, when field trips are at their most frequent, Bailey County found a hot streak when they introduced their impressive exhibit on the Earth's crust, followed by a mineral kit, available from the gift shop, that came with a complimentary handbook entitled, So You've Purchased Your First Geode Kit. The W Stratton fought back by sabotaging their water fountains with chili powder. Bailey County caught their guards napping and let goats loose in the building after hours, one of which ate a sleeve from the jersey of Husky center fielder Bill Abbey. In the end, the Huskies, despite being one sleeve down, won out, and in 1989 helped the W. Stratton Museum of Natural History clench their first Tillman title of Most Visited Natural History Museum in New England only to lose out in the national contest with top honors going to, as usual, the Met across the river. Roger Kern passed away in 1991 and, as stipulated in the family's agreement with the museum, was buried alongside his wife in the backyard of their lone brownstone at 121 Hobuck, across from the emergency exit next to the main floor bathrooms. a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg with an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel this series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg to find more episodes and information visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com